Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. The beautiful thing about public relations, the communications function, is they're the group that probably works more transfunctionally than any other group, you know, because they're the ones that have to forge the consensus, that have to get the buy-off on, hey, are all of my facts straight? This is the business plan going forward. Does this jibe with that? So but they're regularly going to each of the key areas of the business to know exactly what's going on. So they're in a perfect position to be a general counselor for the business strategy and direction going forward if they just take it. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Mary Beth West, Senior Strategist of Fletcher Marketing PR in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I am standing in today for our fearless leader, CEO, Kelly Fletcher, who I think likely determined that given my career-long friendship with my guest today, she wouldn't be able to get a word in edgewise in the gab fest here that's about to ensue. So as always, a most prudent choice by Kelly to let me hog the microphone today. I am joined in studio by one of my dearest friends in our shared industry of public relations. He and I met when we were, gosh, about 19 years old. Banish the thought. And just starting out as students in public relations at the PR program at the University of Tennessee. It was a great time in our lives. We both started out in the industry together, starting out at that very very beginning point in our academic journey and then moving into the industry. And it was just a it was just a great time. And we're going to do a little bit of walking down memory lane, but also today looking at where our guest today has forged his career and where he sees the public relations industry going. And so here's the proper introduction. Let me reference uh, the bio currently posted on Bloomberg. And I'm reading now from several bios that I actually pieced together, including the University of Tennessee College of Communications website and others. Today, I have in studio Travis Parman. Travis Parman joined App Harvest in 2020 as Chief Communications Officer. An Appalachian native, Travis previously served in a number of different global communications roles since 2012, he had been based in Paris, Tokyo, and Nashville with the Renault-Nissan-Mitsubishi Alliance, most recently as Vice President for Nissan Americas and President of the Nissan Foundation. Travis is a native of Greenville, Tennessee, some miles east of Knoxville. He earned a bachelor's degree in communications at the University of Tennessee in 1994. He joined Lockheed Martin in Knoxville as a public affairs representative when he started out his career before moving into employee and executive communications. And Travis then began his 12-year career with General Motors in 1998, starting as a communications specialist at GM's metal fabricating division in Indianapolis. And he moved up the ranks from global internal communications with GM's Vauxhall Motors brand in the United Kingdom to Chevrolet product communications, very near and dear to the West family heart, and consumer media strategy in uh, Detroit, the headquarters city. So after two years as public relations manager for GM's Northeast region, based in New York, Travis directed corporate external relations for GMAC, 
managing the corporate rebranding effort when GMAC was ultimately renamed Ally Financial. And then before moving to Nissan in 2012, he served for a year as vice president of corporate communications for the Pulte Group, the nation's largest home builder. But he's now at App Harvest, and a lot of our conversation today is going to be focused on his role there. He reports to the founder and CEO, Jonathan Webb, and also works with such App Harvest board of directors, luminaries as food and lifestyle icon Martha Stewart. And as a point of information, App Harvest is an applied technology company building some of the world's largest indoor farms in Appalachia. The company combines conventional agricultural techniques with cutting edge technology, and they're addressing a lot of key issues including improving access for all to nutritious food, farming more sustainably, building a homegrown food supply, and increasing investment in Appalachia, which we also know is very near and dear to Travis's heart. The company's 60-acre Moorhead, Kentucky facility is among the largest indoor farms in the United States. So Without further delay, Travis, welcome to Misinterpreted. Thank you. Happy to be here. I am so happy that you're here. And as Rogers and Hammerstein once wrote and Julie Andrews once saying, let's start at the very beginning. A beautiful <laughs> place to start or a very good place to start, I should say. Coming out of Greene County, Tennessee, where you grew up, how did you forge your path initially toward public relations? And I'd love for our listeners to hear kind of that foundational story. You know, I, I always loved English. And then I got involved with our journalism program at Greenville High School and became the editor of the high school newspaper and for some time thought that I might want to pursue a journalism career. Right. I then really started exploring a little bit more and started learning about how I could use those similar skill sets also to be persuasive, also in a strategic business sort of way, and learned about public relations. And so I actually applied for public relations scholarships when I was still in high school. A lot of people kind of fall into public relations right. later in their careers, whether it's academic or whether it's their professional career. So I'm a little bit unusual in that I knew from the beginning, similar to you, that I really wanted to pursue this field. And I remember one of the things that impressed me was doing my research to apply for scholarships. I stumbled across this quote that has always stayed with me, and it was, in this age, in this country... Public sentiment is everything. With it, nothing can fail. Against it, nothing can succeed. Whoever molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces judicial decisions. That sounds like something to me that could be completely contemporary. But that was actually Abraham Lincoln before the term public relations ever was coined. You have to have the support of the people to do right. it. And for me, that's the foundation of public relations is getting the support of the people to change minds, to change hearts, to change behaviors, to incite actions. Well, and that's a, just a core fundamental piece of democracy and of, you know, all things good in our world and in our nation that we would like to put forward. And and I kind of come from a similar ethic, I think, just this idea of consensus building and outreach and education and helping others understand concepts that are important for organizations to succeed. And those were some of the value systems that I think really came through to us when we were at UT and, and a lot of those classes that we shared and a lot of the experiences we had early on. Of course, PRSSA, the Public Relations Student Society of America, 
was a huge part of our friendship early on. And I know we both support the idea of more and more diverse students entering the field. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what are you seeing from students today that encourages you about the future of our industry? And I guess as an add-on question to that, what do you wish could change or be done differently to help students excel faster in service to our industry? So, you know, kind of glass half full or glass half empty kind of question. Yeah, I always stay uh, glass half full. Right. And in this case, I will say, I used to be uh, what I refer to as a public relations purist on, I wanted to work with folks who had a communications background, who had experience in communications and basically had their pedigree. As I have matured, I have encountered more and more folks who have really good experience coming from multiple areas. And in many of those cases, folks with a diverse background in many different ways who don't follow that path of having been in communications all along. So I think there are lots of folks who have significant contributions that they can add. And I think that's a place to find more diverse perspectives to Mm -hmm. integrate into public relations. And I'm really seeing that across the board. I had the opportunity yesterday to speak with a group of seniors at the University of Tennessee, and it still was skewed largely female. White female, I'm sure. Yeah, there was. We did we did have some diversity. We had some ethnic diversity in the class, too. Yeah, and that's not a knock on the University of Tennessee. I mean, that's just something you see, you know, when I've seen attendees to the PRSSA National Conference or just pictures of chapters and think like, here's our executive board. Very often it is white females. Yeah. It's just kind of interesting that in our industry, and Kelly and I talk about this a lot, is the fact that we are such a female-dominated industry, some anywhere between, say, 65 to 80%, depending upon what market you're in across the globe. But yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, it does tend to be pervasive. And of course, anytime you have a situation set up like that, it's hard to change it. Right. You know, Right. I mean, and it, it takes time. It's a systemic thing that ends up evolving and you have to get at the, okay, what's driving this? Yeah. Now, what I am seeing is is public relations. It, there was always the the old time debate on, you know, how do you get a seat at the table? And it's prove your worth, show your mm-hmm. value, you know, mm-hmm. have an opinion, make it known, show the strategic insights that you can bring and deliver those. And I think diverse perspectives really help to do that. In my case, I do think that gay men, women, anyone who has a diverse background, anyone who at some point has been marginalized in some way, whose opinion has been to some extent unfairly discounted. Mm -hmm. Those are the folks who learn how to read a room. Those are the folks who learn how to read political nuance into every scenario and situation that they're put in because they're concerned about, is someone going to listen to me? Are my ideas going to be accepted or are they going to be dismissed because of my background, because they think that I can't connect with them because I'm different? So all of that diversity, those are the folks who I think are really good at public relations because they read into those political nuances of any situation, every scenario, and they're sensitive to it and they plan for it. So I think that's why you see a lot of successful women in public relations and increasingly more minorities because they come from those backgrounds where they really hone their skills 
at the foundation of public relations. Right. And that's why I think it's so essential for those very individuals to have a shot at executive management, because that's the piece that's missing in so many organizational constructs is the fact that, you know, we may have stronger diversity on the entry level to middle rungs, but it's not at the senior level. And that's that that is a big part that I think we're going to have to continue advocating and just helping the industry understand what are the best way to develop those pathways. I loved what you said earlier about being a public relations purist. And I, I come from that place too. And I remember in PRSSA, there, there has always been this codified rule about what you had to have to be a chapter. It was, I think, primarily all four-year colleges and universities, and you had to have so many public relations classes, and you had to have this advisor and this advisor, and you had to, there were all these little hoops that we had to jump through. And that was a good thing for, I guess, quality control of the, I guess, pedigreed programs, public relations programs that could qualify for a PRSSA chapter. But I was just having some conversations with colleagues recently about the power, for example, of community colleges as an entry point. And there are, I think, a lot of community colleges that offer more technical degrees in areas like media technologies. So I hear you totally on like, like, let's open up our minds about what are the best pathways and what those are. I'd like to also just talk about diversity from your vantage point as a major trailblazer in the industry, you have championed diversity. And I have just noticed across our shared careers, you've shown just tremendous courage in doing that throughout your career, starting in the early 1990s when doing so could be truly fraught with perils and consequences to making that advocacy known. For example, you were the first openly gay PRSSA national president ever in that organization. Later at GM Corporate in Detroit, nearly 20 years ago, you forged LGBT diversity as an, you know, in an industry that I think arguably to this day is still struggling with some diversity issues. So I'd love for you to talk about some of your experiences in that. Yeah, I, I'd have to say when you're in the middle of it, you don't think about it. I saw opportunity. I saw opportunity to be inclusive. And I took those opportunities, helped to create some of those opportunities. But when you're in the middle of it, you don't really necessarily think about it as much from an outside perspective. It wasn't until I had been doing this for several years. And then I eventually started to hear from a few folks who said, you know what? You being out, you doing LGBT themed programs, you know, catering especially to LGBT media in some of these cases where it never had been done before. Right. You know, I never would have gotten involved had you not forged that path first. But I didn't think about it at the time. I didn't think about it later. So it's one of those things that I'll appreciate maybe a little bit more in retrospect than at the time. But it really was just I thought, hey, this is a skill set. These are relationships that I can bring to the advantage of the whichever company, whichever client I was working for at the time. And there's an opportunity to leverage that and to make a statement in doing so. And well, so, well, in making the business case that that was a smart move back those many years ago for those corporations to embrace those audiences uh, more full on in an authentic way. 
how did you make that business case? What was your strategy that you identified? There was a lot of concern because at the time, brands tended to think if we're a niche brand and we're catering to a diverse audience, then we can go into a channel that really just reaches that diverse audience and we don't get a lot of spillover in other places. And so that was the thing that really helped folks on, ah, we're not sure that we want to promote this car as a gay car and then get it labeled as a gay car that straight people don't want to buy. I've sat in meetings and had that conversation. That actual conversation. Yep. Yeah. And so <laughs> well. the, the, the strategy, the rationale was, hey, we can be pretty targeted with this. You know, we can go through these LGBT channels and reach these audiences in this way and be inclusive without very much spillover. And any spillover that we get are going to be ally supporters, most likely anyway. And so that was kind of the in to begin with. And then as things continued to evolve, it became something that was so integrated that no one cared. You know, it didn't really matter as much. And it got to a point where we were doing these special programs for diverse audiences, in my case, primarily LGBT audiences at major events, such as some of the the car shows that we used to do pre-COVID. And um, the 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 regular journalists would get so interested because they're like, their program is more fun. Can yeah, I go? Yeah. Can I go on the LGBT program? <laughs> because they've got me slotted to go over and do X, Y, Z. But yeah. I'd really like to go on the LGBT program if you could include me in that. <laughs> and so that's where I think they really started to see the value. And there's something here about the way these folks connect with one another when you're speaking. Yeah, the creativity, number one, I think, and just the engagement being just more. You have to be interesting. Well, and the original approach was let's have a diversity program. But they wanted to put all the diversity folks together. So they wanted to put every Very ethnic diversity. They wanted to put, you know, all of the LGBT folks, everyone, you're on the diversity program. And we're like, you know, that that's maybe okay for a start, but we really need to change that too, because just lumping all of these disparate groups together as diverse and trying to 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 make a program out of that doesn't work. Well, and that's the secret sauce, the full on integration and the cultural integration of embracing it. So how did you advise and how have you advised over your career for brands to make that leap from, okay, we're going to you know take this on from a philosophical standpoint, but truly making it part of our cultural value system. I guess that's a process. It just takes time, right? Yeah. And it's one of those things where you, you, you know, what gets measured gets done, you know, the old adage, and it was starting to add key performance indicators for diversity and diversity outreach and, and taking a look at those numbers and, and how well they were performing and taking a look to start to see what competitors were doing and how they compared with competitors doing outreach to diverse groups. Right, right. That's just so interesting to me. Of course, we call this podcast, Kelly and I do, misinterpreted for a reason. We embrace this notion of using our platform here to tackle everything from societal myths and misunderstandings, but also stereotypes, particularly as they relate to the PR industry itself, as well as issues that we in PR are often tasked with addressing, communicating. So let's talk about the biggest myth, misunderstanding, or stereotype that you, Travis, that you think is hindering or limiting PR from reaching its full potential as a management function. I mean, you talked about that proverbial getting the seat at a table piece. 
What are your thoughts on that? What stereotype, myth, misunderstanding is when you think about the industry writ large is really st- standing in our way after these many decades of what we've observed in the industry? Yeah, I'd say that in some cases there are too many folks within the industry and that in some cases external to the industry who don't have a comprehension of what public relations can do as a strategic function. And so they see it more one-dimensionally and they see it as a transaction. So, and they see it tactically. So it's event planning. It is publicity getting versus really developing a narrative on behalf of an organization to say, what are the business goals and objectives? What are we trying to accomplish here? And who's important to make that happen? And what do they need to hear? What are they interested in so that we can establish a relationship, establish an understanding so that we can move that direction together with something that mutually benefits us? I think it's that whole approach. And so I think you still have cases where I think folks who study public relations, who get good experience in public relations, understand the strategic ability of it, but in some cases still tend to be quiet. They still tend to defer to what the CEO says he wants to do, to what general counsel says should be done, to what the CFO says needs to be done and how much can be spent in any specific area. And so really being able to understand the business from top to bottom and then to justify the programs that you think need to be implemented from a public relations perspective, that's the connection that doesn't seem to happen as often as it really needs to. And it's the grand irony that we are in communications, we are paid to advocate, we are paid to communicate, but when it comes to doing that on our own behalves, that's where so many of us in the industry, we... I don't know what it is. It's like it's almost like there's a psychological reticence about standing up for ourselves or I, and I, I don't know where that's coming from. I don't I, I wonder whether it's something even at the academic and foundational level that we need to promote more so in academia, those types of skill sets and the mindset that comes with it. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I I do see folks in our industry sometimes being more deferential than they should be. And I'm not sure what systemically can cause that. But as a function, communications tends to be small but mighty. And so all of the other organizations that we just talked about, legal, finance, and accounting, they generally come from backgrounds where they have risen up through the hierarchy in a very systematic sort of way and so they've gotten accustomed to the language and working with their counterparts up through the hierarchy whereas communications tends to be small and they tend to counsel just the top of the food chain and so i think sometimes folks get thrust into that position where suddenly they should be in a counselor role but they haven't necessarily developed that thick skin that's required to be a true counselor and to give information that is going to be perceived, you know, potentially as something that's unpopular, unpopular, frustrating, you know, I not what I want to hear, just get it done. And so I think maybe that's what lends to it a little bit is earlier in their careers, public relations folks don't always necessarily have the opportunity to have that senior level interaction with folks to really develop that thick skin to learn what it takes to be a good counselor. 
I think that we could have a whole other podcast talking about skill sets and experiential factors and, and training that really the industry needs in order to help the entry level excel to mid-level quicker and mid-level to understand those core competencies to become the executive voice and the advocacy voice. The beautiful thing about public relations, the communications function is they're the group that probably works more transfunctionally than any other group, you know, because they're the ones that have to forge the consensus that have to get the buy off on, Hey, are all of my facts straight? This is the business plan going forward. Does this jibe with that? So, but they're regularly going to each of the key areas of the business to know exactly what's going on. So they're in a perfect position to be a general counselor for the business strategy and direction going forward if they just take it. Right, right. And I do think that connecting the dots on the accountability function of understanding we have to communicate messages that are truthful and accurate and that goes internally as well as externally. Again, I just think this could be a whole other podcast just talking about that aspect of it, but I'd love to talk about App Harvest. So what drove you to join that company as chief communications officer and particularly coming from such a plum position that you had previously with Nissan corporate? Yeah. So I had done the big corporate thing. I had had the staff of hundreds, you know, to be able to work with. And when we went into COVID, we really leveraged that. So the things that I really appreciated growing up through my career were the professional development opportunities, which when I look back on them were were pretty measly. They were not that well structured. And I thought, that's what I want to give my team. I, you know, I really want to dive in. I want to be listening to podcasts. I want to be reading you know, the the latest research in a lot of different areas and sharing that and, and striking up conversations. COVID actually made that even easier. I was having chief communications officers, for example, from Johnson & Johnson come in and, and chat, you know, for professional development sessions via Zoom with the team. And when COVID started, we had a really mature team, a mature company with mature processes. And so we handled COVID well in that respect. We were more connected in lots of ways because of it. But I think COVID gave us all lots of opportunity to get a lot more introspective about, is my career really where I want it to be at this point? And I was starting to crave a little more purpose, a little more meaning. And a good friend of mine that I had worked with in Paris had told me when she was leaving Paris to go back to the US that she she was gonna work for this artificial meat company. And I thought that is the grossest thing I've ever heard (laughs) (laughs) in my life. Good luck with that. And then over the course of about five years, you know, I saw her take that from scratch, you know, something that was nascent and no one knew about to being parodied in a great way on Saturday Night Live. And so that company was Impossible Food. So my colleague was Rachel Conrad. And so she established from the ground up a communications team and really made an impact. And so I I had admired that. I had to some extent envied that. And I thought, I want a piece of that. And so she was one of the folks who had turned me on to App Harvest. And she said, hey, this looks like a great opportunity. And the mission is Appalachian based. And she goes, this is made for you. Yeah. And so I talked to the founder and CEO and, you know, he was the crux of his conversation was pretty much Aren't you Appalachian? 
isn't it time to come home? <laughs> That's great. And he laid out the mission for what he yeah. was trying to establish yeah. from a sustainability perspective, both on the environmental side and on the social impact side to diversify the economy and really to help some of the most distressed counties in Appalachia. And I thought, this is this is it. Yeah. This is the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, that gets to core personal purpose. When, I mean, when you think about it, when I think about your background and where you grew up and just a love of home and community. I mean, even though you've been all over the world with your career on multiple continents and I mean, doing things that have just been so leadership driven to be able to have that foundational touchstone is that has to be really nice. But I'd love to hear more about this sustainability piece. And of course, we hear a lot about sustainability and ESG these days. There's a lot of confusion, I think, around the expansiveness of that concept and just the movement in general. And so from the App Harvest vantage point, what does ESG mean to you and how are you strategically communicating the company's vision through that particular lens? It's a, it's, it's a very big part of the story, of the company's story. Yeah, so ESG, sustainability, really has become a buzzword, and some people treat it that way. So they want to put out a sustainability or an ESG annual report and talk about the good things they're doing from an environmental perspective. Sometimes they make it over to the social perspective as well. But App Harvest's approach to it is ESG is not a nice-to-have. It's a need-to-have. It is the way businesses will be held accountable going forward and it will be a baseline for operating as the public continues to get more educated about the companies that they do business with. It's really something that increasingly they're going to demand. So App Harvest is both a public benefit corporation and a B Corp certified company, which gives us actually more latitude to represent our broad stakeholders versus just saying you have to be doing everything that is in favor of getting a good short-term shareholder return. So it's really about planning for the longer term and making sure that things are sustainable, both from a people perspective and an environmental perspective. Right. And, when, and for decades, I think, across particularly the investor relations spectrum, it was all about meeting analyst expectations, meeting that magic number every quarter, and it was just such a myopic view of what stakeholder expectation needed to be about only really through the investor lens and through the financial lens. And to me, being this far in my career as I am and having started my career back when that more myopic view was the ethic, the corporate and financial ethic, it's good to be in this place where we're having a much broader conversation. I think it opens up the opportunity for communications tremendously. ESG is, I think, all about facing down the say-do disconnect. And I think that in that ethics arena, it's the biggest credibility buster when a company espouses ideas or claims that they then fail to action. So what do you think is the biggest challenge or common mistake companies are making, given the power in particular of social media to expose and attack those kinds of inconsistencies? And I instantly, I think the ESG conversation dovetails right into this because, as to, you know, to your point, it's an accountability function. Yeah, and I, I think it is underestimating the ability these days for 
folks to have their voices heard. So making sure that you are doing what you say in each of those areas. And so one of App Parva's core values is radical transparency. Mm. And so that's what is really important to us is living up to the expectations that we've set both from an internal perspective with employees and the employee experience that they should be having and what we're doing externally on are we actually accomplishing what we set out to accomplish on are we really farming with 90 percent less water you know and not using the harsh chemical pesticides and maximizing our opportunities for renewable energies like because we've got a greenhouse design and using as much passive solar as possible so laying out those things and then establishing living wages for our employees and having that measured by an outside source and continuing to offer opportunities for development as we uh, establish our this network we've got one farm now and we're planning to have a network of 12 indoor high-tech farms by 2025. So exciting. So it's really, yeah, continuing to have that dialogue, that conversation. Right. Well, and I think that uh, delves perfectly into the fact that September is Ethics Month in the PR industry. And in the Public Relations and Communications Association, or PRCA, where, where I've gotten very involved in recent years, we're in the throes of quite a bit of programming on this topic as we are year round. And listeners, by the way, please follow the hashtag PR ethics on social media. So Travis, when you look back on your career, what was the biggest ethics challenge you encountered that you feel comfortable sharing with us just anecdotally? And what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, I'd have to say that probably the way things are perceived internationally with different cultural standards, different cultural norms. I ran into a number of issues where I was working with folks who had a perspective of one particular country and had real difficulty taking a look at how this would be perceived internationally in other countries. And so trying to have that conversation about, I understand that this approach is acceptable in your one country, but globally, the standard is different. You know, internationally, in most countries, the standard is different. And so here's how we need to shape your strategy, shape your approach. And getting folks to understand that was was one of the big challenges that I had. Right. And, and it is so complicated when you're being held accountable based on one set of standards in one nation and accountable in another nation based on another and trying to bridge those gaps and make sure that you are, are coming out from a positive perceptual vantage point across both. I would think that would be very difficult. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. And how much when you were doing global communications for you know the GMs of the world or the Nissans of the world, I mean, was that a very routine issue that you were encountering? Yeah, there were some some issues that were higher profile than others where right. it was more of an issue, but fairly routine. Yeah. And again, it was one of those things where you ultimately, in some cases, needed to make the decision on how big is the issue and is it going to be limited to the country or is there going to be spillover? Because if there's going to be spillover outside the country, you need to take all of those other cultural norms and expectations into account. Right. Did codes of ethics, actual written codes of ethics for your industry, whether it's the automotive industry or 
professional sector ever kind of factor? And did you reference those? Was that something or and I guess within corporations, they have their own codes of ethics or codes of conduct, certainly. But just from that perspective, being able to apply what's on paper from a compliance standpoint, did any of that ever factor in much? You know, I'd have to say no, not a lot, because in many of these cases, we're, we're working with countries who don't have a comprehension of public relations to begin with. Um, that is so interesting. That, yeah, that that matches at least that matches what we expect in the U.S. And then I think a lot of those corporate exercises are things that get done years ago. Don't necessarily get done in a way that involves the entire company in an engaging sort of way, so that they're helping to build that. That's one of the things that when I go in with vision and mission statements, it's always how are we going to involve everyone in this so that they really understand it from the beginning and have an opportunity to say whether they feel that it reflects them also or not. Um, So I think a lot of times those ideas get formulated by some task team or some senior level executive group without involving other folks. And so they're not referenced because people forget about them. They might be on a wall in a conference room somewhere, but other than that, they don't get referenced. Right. So, you and I are both approaching a milestone birthday next year, and me sooner than you, as I'm sure you'd like to point out to the world. I've been contemplating it a lot more and more recently, just taking stock of where I am in my life, my career, what I want the next 10 years to be about. And you've done and accomplished so much, truly reached the apex of the industry when you've been this successful, how do you envision your future? I mean, you spoke to that a little bit earlier about finding core personal purpose in what you're doing. But when you think about the next five to 10 year time horizon and, you know, where we are in our lives and so forth, and we're in the number involves a five in it and a zero in it. What are your thoughts? You know, I, I never think in terms of career success that I've had, I, I think, I've had a lot of work to do, you know, and I, I guess I think a little bit more in terms of success being how many people have I been able to lend a hand to or to help shape their career to some extent. Oh, that's great. And, and give, that's it's a servant leadership kind of model, really. I mean, what are you giving? Yeah, you know? I, because I think you are most effective when you do come across from from a humble perspective on, you know, how how can I help? Now, sometimes you have to be a little bit harder and say, here's how I see this, and you've got to hear this, and I can't be completely soft you know, with you. But I did find that at Harvest was a calling, that it was one of those, there was something that was stirring in me that I need something with a little more purpose, a little more mission, a little more meaning that I wanted to you know, come try you know, to see what I could do to help out. And on a small scale, you know, I had gotten to the point where I had such good, strong organizations especially the Nissan Americas group that um, I felt like I was tweaking a little, you know, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, but they had it, you know, for the most part. And so besides breaking a few roadblocks for them, maybe here and there, you know, they, they had everything that they needed. So this was an opportunity really to jump in from scratch to say, okay, this organization, you know, was basically 50 folks last year and we're at about 500 this year and expect to be at several thousand by next year you know, on a mission to really change the approach to agriculture, to make it more sustainable. And so we've had a lot of luck because I think that the story is just naturally, it's simple, 
it's elegant and it's intuitive for most people. So I always joke with the CEO that tomatoes have not made this much news since ketchup, but <laughs> it's because it's a good story that people relate yeah. to. Yeah, absolutely. When we think about our colleagues who are maybe 10 years into their career path and they're looking to make the the leap and the jump that you did to executive management, I'd like to close on this question. What are some of the things that you feel like they can best do to advance themselves in their career path and in a way that is purpose-driven? If, if you could just give some ad- career advice out there to, to those who are really looking at their next five to 10 years. Yeah. I used to get this question a lot counseling students on which area of communication should I go into? And it was usually money related on, you know, should I go into investor relations? Should I go into certain different fields that were more technical in nature? And I'm like, I can tell you the highest incomes in each of those areas and you can make your choice, but you're never going to do as well as if you pursue your passion and what you're really interested in, because then it's not a job. Then you're going to put your all into it. Then it becomes a lifestyle that you integrate your work into. And I said, that's always where you're going to succeed the most and have the most, most success. And then that's when the other types of success will follow. However you value that. I think money used to be more of a motivating factor than it is for current generations. And it's how can I make the most impact on folks? And so I think that's how they're tending to evaluate it more now, but it's pursue your interests first, pursue your loves, your passions first, and the other will follow. So I think that's number one, what you have to do. And then number two, it's, understand the business from top to bottom so that you're really providing counsel that helps move the business forward. And that's when the whole team will see the value that you deliver. And that's where you accumulate the the power of counsel because people will seek your counsel. They will want to listen to you because they see the value that you add. Right. Well, I think that's excellent advice. And Excellent advice to end the chat on. I've loved this conversation so much, Travis. Thank you so much for being with us. And to our listeners, thank you for supporting the Misinterpreted Podcast by Fletcher Marketing PR. You can connect with Travis Parman on LinkedIn and follow him at Twitter handle at Travis Parman, P-A-R-M-A-N. And you can also follow App Harvest at Twitter handle App, A-P-P, Harvest. Please follow us at Twitter handle Fletcher PR. You can also follow Kelly Fletcher at Twitter handle KD Fletcher and me at Mary Beth West. Quick reminder as well to follow the PRCA's Ethics Month at hashtag PREthics. Special thanks too to our sound engineer, Chris Hill with Knoxville-based HumblePod. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.